Lucy Parsons wrote this in 1905. It's called The Principles of Anarchism. Comrades and Friends, I think I cannot open my address more appropriately than by stating my experience and my long connection with the reform movement. It was during the Great Railroad Strike of 1877 that I first became interested in what is known as the labor question. I then thought, as many thousands of earnest, sincere people think, that aggregate power, operating in human society known as government, could be made an instrument in the hands of the oppressed to alleviate their sufferings. But a closer study of the origin, history, and tendency of governments convinced me that this was a mistake. I came to understand how organized governments used their concentrated power to retard progress by their ever-ready means of silencing the voice of discontent if raised in vigorous protest against the machinations of the scheming few, who always did, always will, and always must rule in the councils of nations where majority rules recognized as the only means of adjusting the affairs of the people. I came to understand that such concentrated power can be always wielded in the interest of the few and at the expense of the many. Government, in its last analysis, is this power reduced to a science. Governments never lead, they follow progress. When the prison, stake, or scaffold can no longer silence the voice of the protesting minority, progress moves on a step, but not until then. I will state this contention in another way. I learned by close study that it made no difference what fair promises a political party out of power might make to the people in order to secure their confidence. When once securely established in control of the affairs of society, that they were, after all, but human, with all the human attributes of the politician. Among these are, first, to remain in power at all hazards, if not individually, then those holding essentially the same views as the administration must be kept in control. Second, in order to keep in power, it is necessary to build up a powerful machine, one strong enough to crush all opposition and silence all vigorous murmurs of discontent or the party machine might be smashed and the party thereby lose control. When I came to realize the faults, failings, shortcomings, aspirations, and ambitions of fallible men, I concluded that it would not be the safest nor best policy for society as a whole to entrust the management of all its affairs, with all their manifold deviations and ramifications in the hands of finite man, to be managed by the party which happened to come into power, and therefore was the majority party. Nor did it then, nor does it now make one particle of difference to me what a party out of power may promise. It does not tend to allay my fears of what a party, when entrenched and securely seated in power, might do to crush opposition and silence the voice of the minority, and thus retard the onward step of progress. My mind is appalled at the thought of a political party having control of all the details that go to make up the sum total of our lives. Think of it for an instant that the party in power shall have all authority to dictate the kind of books that shall be used in our schools and universities. Government officials editing, printing, and circulating our literature, histories, magazines, and press, to say nothing of the thousand and one activities of the life that people engage in in a civilized society. To my mind, the struggle for liberty is too great, and the few steps we have gained have been won at too great a sacrifice for the great mass of the people of this 20th century to consent to turn over to any political party the management of our social and industrial affairs. For all who are at all familiar with history, know that men will abuse power when they possess it. For these and other reasons, I, after careful study and not through sentiment, turned from a sincere, earnest political socialist to the non-political phase of socialism, anarchism. Because, in its philosophy, I believe I can find the proper conditions for the fullest development of the individual units in society, which can never be the case under government restrictions. 
The philosophy of anarchism is included in the word liberty, yet it is comprehensive enough to include all things else that are conducive to progress. No barriers whatever to human progression, to thought, or investigation are placed by anarchism. Nothing is considered so true or so certain that future discoveries may not prove it false. Therefore, it has but one infallible, unchangeable motto. Freedom. Freedom to discover any truth. Freedom to develop, to live naturally and fully. Other schools of thought are composed of crystallized ideas, principles that are caught and impaled between the planks of long platforms and considered too sacred to be disturbed by a close investigation. In all other issues, there is always a limit, some imaginary boundary line beyond which the searching mind dare not penetrate, lest some pet idea melt into a myth. But anarchism is the usher of science, the master of ceremonies to all forms of truth. It would remove all barriers between the human being and natural development. From the natural resources of the earth, all artificial restrictions that the body might be nurtured, and from universal truth, all bars of prejudice and superstition that the mind may develop symmetrically. Anarchists know that a long period of education must precede any great fundamental change in society. Hence, they do not believe in vote-begging or political campaigns, but rather in the development of self-thinking individuals. We look away from government for relief. Because we know that force, legalized, invades the personal liberty of man, seizes upon the natural elements, and intervenes between man and natural laws. From this exercise of force through governments flows nearly all the misery, poverty, crime, and confusion existing in society. So, we perceive, there are actual material barriers blockading the way. These must be removed. If we could hope they would melt away, or be voted or prayed into nothingness, we would be content to wait and vote and pray. But they are like great frowning rocks towering between us and the land of freedom while the dark chasms of a hard-fought past yawn behind us. Crumbling they may be with their own weight in the decay of time, but to quietly stand under until they fall is to be buried in the crash. There is something to be done in a case like this. The rocks must be removed. Passivity while slavery is stealing over us is a crime. For the moment, we must forget that we are anarchists. When the work is accomplished, we may forget that we were revolutionists. Hence, most anarchists believe the coming change can only come through a revolution, because the possessing class will not allow a peaceful change to take place. Still, we are willing to work for peace at any price, except at the price of liberty. And what of the glowing beyond that is so bright that those who grind the faces of the poor say it is a dream? It is no dream. It is the real, stripped of brain distortions, materialized into thrones and scaffolds, meters and guns. It is nature acting on her own interior laws, as in all her other associations. It is a return to first principles. For were not the land, the water, the light, all free before governments took shape and form? In this free state, we will again forget to think of these things as property. It is real, for we, as a race, are growing up to it. The idea of less restriction and more liberty, and a confiding trust that nature is equal to our work, is permeating all modern thought. From the dark years not so long gone by, when it was generally believed that man's soul was totally depraved and every human impulse bad, when every action, every thought, and every emotion was controlled and restricted, when the human frame, diseased, was bled, dosed, suffocated, and kept as far from nature's remedies as possible, 
when the mind was seized upon and distorted before it had time to evolve a natural thought. From those days to these years, the progress of this idea has been swift and steady. It is becoming more and more apparent that in every way we are governed best where we are governed least. Still unsatisfied, perhaps, the inquirer seeks for details, for ways and means and whys and wherefores, how will we go on like human beings, eating and sleeping, working and loving, exchanging and dealing without government? So used have we become to organized authority in every department of life, that ordinarily we cannot conceive of the most commonplace avocations being carried on without their interference and protection. But anarchism is not compelled to outline a complete organization of a free society. To do so with any assumption of authority would be to place another barrier in the way of coming generations. The best thought of today may become the useless vagary of tomorrow, and to crystallize it into a creed is to make it unwieldy. We judge from experience that man is a gregarious animal, and instinctively affiliates with his kind, cooperates, unites in groups, works to better advantage combined with his fellow man than when alone. This would point to the formation of cooperative communities of which our present trade unions are embryonic patterns. Each branch of industry will no doubt have its own organization, regulations, leaders, etc. It will institute methods of direct communication with every member of that industrial branch in the world and establish equitable relations with all other branches. There will probably be conventions of industry which delegates would attend and where they would transact such business as was necessary, adjourn, and from that moment be delegates no longer but simply members of a group. To remain permanent members of a continuous congress would be to establish a power that is certain, sooner or later, to be abused. No great central power like a congress consisting of men who know nothing of their constituents' trades, interests, rights, or duties would be over the various organizations or groups. Nor would they employ sheriffs, policemen, courts, or jailers to enforce the conclusions arrived at while in session. The members of groups might profit by the knowledge gained through mutual interchange of thought afforded by conventions if they choose, but they will not be compelled to do so by any outside force. Vested rights, privileges, charters, title deeds, upheld by all the paraphernalia of government, the visible symbol of power, such as prison, scaffold, and armies, will have no existence. There can be no privileges bought or sold, and the transaction kept sacred at the point of the bayonet. Every man will stand on an equal footing with his brother in the race of life, and either chains of economic thraldom, nor menial drags of superstition, shall handicap the one to the advantage of the other. Property will lose a certain attribute which sanctifies it now. The absolute ownership of it, the right to use or abuse, will be abolished, and possession use will be the only title. It will be seen how impossible it would be for one person to own a million acres of land without a title deed, backed by a government ready to protect the title at all hazards, even to the loss of thousands of lives. He could not use the million acres himself, nor could he wrest from its depths the possible resources it contains. People have become so used to seeing the evidences of authority on every hand, that most of them honestly believe that they would go utterly to the bad if it were not for the policeman's club or the soldier's bayonet. But the anarchist says, remove these evidences of brute force, and let man feel the revivifying influences of self-responsibility and self-control, and see how we will respond to these better influences. The belief in a literal place of torment has nearly melted away, and instead of the direful results predicted, we have a higher and truer standard of manhood and womanhood. People do not care to go to the bad when they find they can as well as not. 
Individuals are unconscious of their own motives in doing good. While acting out their natures according to their surroundings and conditions, they still believe they are being kept in the right path by some outside power, some restraint thrown around them by church or state. So the objector believes that with the right to rebel and secede sacred to him, he would forever be rebelling and seceding, thereby creating constant confusion and turmoil. Is it probable that he would, merely for the reason that he could do so? Men are to a great extent creatures of habit, and grow to love associations. Under reasonably good conditions, he would remain where he commences if he wished to, and if he did not, who has any natural right to force him into relations distasteful to him? Under the present order of affairs, persons do unite with societies and remain good, disinterested members for life where the right to retire is always conceded. What we anarchists contend for is a larger opportunity to develop the units in society that mankind may possess the right, as a sound being, to develop that which is broadest, noblest, highest, and best, unhandicapped by any centralized authority, where he shall have to wait for his permits to be signed, sealed, approved, and handed down to him before he can engage in the active pursuits of life with his fellow beings. We know that, after all, as we grow more enlightened under this larger liberty, we will grow to care less and less for that exact distribution of material wealth which, on our greed-nurtured senses, seems now so impossible to think upon carelessly. The man and woman of loftier intellects, in the present, think not so much of the riches to be gained by their efforts as of the good they can do for their fellow creatures. There is an innate spring of healthy action in every human being who has not been crushed and pinched by poverty and drudgery from before his birth that impels him onward and upward. He cannot be idle if he would. It is as natural for him to develop, expand, and use the powers within him, when not repressed, as it is for the rose to bloom in the sunlight and fling its fragrance upon the passing breeze. The grandest works of the past were never performed for the sake of money. Who can measure the worth of a Shakespeare, a Michelangelo, or Beethoven in dollars and cents? Agassiz said, he had no time to make money. There were higher and better objects in life than that. And so it will be when humanity is once relieved from the pressing fear of starvation, want, and slavery. It will be concerned less and less about the ownership of vast accumulations of wealth. Such positions would be but an annoyance and trouble. When two or three or four hours a day of easy, of healthful labor will produce all the comforts and luxuries one can use, and the opportunity to labor is never denied, people will become indifferent as to who owns the wealth they do not need. Wealth will be below par, and it will be found that men and women will not accept it for pay or be bribed by it to do what they would not willingly and naturally do without it. Some higher incentive must and will supersede the greed for gold. The involuntary aspiration born in man to make the most of oneself, to be loved and appreciated by one's fellow beings, to make the world better for having lived in it, will urge him on to nobler deeds than ever the sordid and selfish incentive of material gain has done. If, in the present chaotic and shameful struggle for existence, when organized society offers a premium on greed, cruelty, and deceit, men can be found who stand aloof and almost alone in their determination to work for good rather than gold, who suffer want and persecution rather than desert principle, who can bravely walk to the scaffold for the good they can do humanity, what may we expect from men when freed from the grinding necessity of selling the better part of themselves for bread? The terrible conditions under which labor is performed, the awful alternative if one does not prostitute talent and morals in the service of mammon, 
and the power acquired with the wealth obtained by ever so unjust means, combined to make the conception of free and voluntary labor almost an impossible one. And yet there are examples of this principle even now. In a well-bred family, each person has certain duties, which are performed cheerfully and are not measured out and paid for according to some predetermined standard. When the united members sit down to the well-filled table, the stronger do not scramble to get the most, while the weakest do without or gather greedily around them for more food than they can possibly consume. Each, patiently and politely, awaits his turn to be served and leaves what he does not want. He is certain that, when again hungry, plenty of good food will be provided. This principle can be extended to include all society when people are civilized enough to wish it. Again, the utter impossibility of awarding to each an exact return for the amount of labor performed will render absolute communism a necessity sooner or later. The land and all it contains, without which labor cannot be exerted, belong to no one man but to all alike. The inventions and discoveries of the past are the common inheritance of the coming generations. And when a man takes the tree that nature furnished free, and fashions it into a useful article, or a machine perfected and bequeathed to him by many past generations, who is to determine what proportion is his and his alone? Primitive man would have been a weak fashioning a rude resemblance to the article with his clumsy tools, where the modern worker has occupied an hour. The finished article is of far more real value than the rude one made long ago, and yet the primitive man toiled the longest and hardest. Who can determine with exact justice what is each one's due? There must come a time when we will cease trying. The earth is so bountiful, so generous, man's brain is so active, his hands so restless, that wealth will spring like magic ready for the use of the world's inhabitants. We will become as much ashamed to quarrel over its possession as we are now to squabble over the food spread before us on a loaded table. But all this, the objector urges, is very beautiful in the far-off future when we become angels. It would not do now to abolish governments and legal restraints. People are not prepared for it. This is a question. We have seen in reading history that wherever an old-time restriction has been removed, the people have not abused their newer liberty. Once it was considered necessary to compel men to save their souls with the aid of government scaffolds, church racks, and stakes, until the foundation of the American Republic, it was considered absolutely essential that governments should second the efforts of the church in forcing people to attend the means of grace. And yet it is found that the standard of morals among the masses is raised since they are left free to pray as they see fit, or not at all if they prefer it. It was believed that chattel slaves would not work if the overseer and whip were removed. They are so much more a source of profit now that ex-slave owners would not return to the old system even if they could. So many able writers have shown that the unjust institutions which work so much misery and suffering to the masses have their root in governments, and owe their whole existence to the power derived from government. We cannot help but believe that were every law, every title deed, every court, and every police officer or soldier abolished tomorrow with one sweep, we would be better off than now. The actual material things that man needs would still exist, his strength and skill would remain, and his instinctive social inclinations retain their force, and the resources of life made free to all the people that they would need no force but that of society and the opinion of fellow beings to keep them moral and upright. Freed from the systems that made him wretched before, he is not likely to make himself more wretched for lack of them. Much more is contained in the thought that conditions make man what he is, 
and not the laws and penalties made for his guidance, than is supposed by careless observation. We have laws, jails, courts, armies, guns, and armories enough to make saints of us all if they were the true preventives of crime. But we know, they do not prevent crime. Wickedness and depravity exist in spite of them, nay, increase as the struggle between classes grows fiercer, wealth greater and more powerful, and poverty more gaunt and desperate. To the governing class, the anarchists say, Gentlemen, we ask no privilege. We propose no restriction. Nor, on the other hand, will we permit it. We have no new shackles to propose. We seek emancipation from shackles. We ask no legislative sanction. For cooperation asks only for a free field and no favors, neither will we permit their interference. It asserts that in freedom of the social unit lies the freedom of the social state. It asserts that in freedom to possess and utilize soil lie happiness and progress and a death of rent. It asserts that order can exist only where liberty prevails, and that progress leads and never follows order. It asserts, finally, that this emancipation will inaugurate liberty, equality, fraternity. That the existing industrial system has outgrown its usefulness, if it ever had any, is, I believe, admitted by all who have given serious thought to this phase of social conditions. The manifestations of discontent now looming upon every side show that society is conducted on wrong principles, and that something has got to be done soon, or the wage class will sink into a slavery worse than was the feudal serf. I say to the wage class, think clearly and act quickly, or you are lost. Strike not for a few cents more an hour, because the price of living will be raised faster still, but strike for all you earn, be content with nothing less. Following are definitions which will appear in all of the new standard dictionaries. Anarchism, the philosophy of a new social order based on liberty unrestricted by man-made law, the theory that all forms of government are based on violence, hence wrong and harmful as well as unnecessary. Anarchy, absence of government, disbelief in and disregard of invasion and authority based on coercion and force, a condition of society regulated by a voluntary agreement instead of government. Anarchist, a believer in anarchism, one opposed to all forms of coercive government and invasive authority. Alternatively, one who advocates anarchy or absence of government as the ideal of political liberty and social harmony. 